right, let's turn back in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. In Christ's journey to the cross, the last stage has been set. As readers of Mark's Gospel, we know more of what's going to happen than Jesus' disciples did. We know a plot has been hatched where Jesus will be delivered in the hands of men and cruelly treated. We have observed the devotion of one who gave their very precious for the most precious that Jesus interpreted as an anointing for his burial. Two of his disciples have prepared a table and a room in which they will observe uh, the Passover with the Lord, but little known to them This will be their last meal with him. In the passage before us, Jesus makes three predictions that reveal the weakness and the infidelity of his disciples. He first predicts the 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 first (coughs) excuse me predicts the uh, presence of a betrayer, one of the twelve whom he has chosen. Now Mark does not disclose who it is. But a stark prediction of doom awaits that person. It would have been better for him never to have been born than to be a traitor to the Lord Jesus Christ. That certainly must have gripped the attention of the disciples. Then later on the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus predicts that the rest of the disciples are going to stumble because of him. And if there had been any doubt about who the traitor was, There was no doubt about who the deserters would be. Peter vehemently denies that this will happen, which causes the Lord to make a third prediction. What a word. Hang on a second. Is that me or you? Okay. Um, Peter will not, says he will not desert the Lord, but Jesus, of course, says that's going to happen. He'll deny him three times before the dawn of the morning. Each of these predictions will come to pass before Jesus' trial in the early morning hours of the day of Passover. Couched between these predictions is a presentation of Jesus that we have come to call the Last Supper or the Lord's Table. Through the symbolism of the Passover, he represents his body in the bread and he his shed blood into wine. And he'll... This is not working. Let's see if that's a little better. Sorry about that. Um, in the Passover meal, he represents his body in the bread and his shed blood in the wine. He will partake of the cup of death is a vicarious atonement for our sins. But that's not all. The, t- the cup of death actually becomes the cup of glory as he foretells drinking the wine anew in the kingdom of God. So the future hope of his glory and ours caps the meaning of the last Passover. And as we come before the Lord's table today, let's think deeply about all that happened at that Passover meal. Our Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful that Jesus came. The main purpose he came was to die for our sins. 
But Lord, we're thankful he didn't stay dead in a grave. He was raised again on the third day and now sits at your right hand, awaiting his coming again. Lord, as we uh, look at the actual last Passover meal, help us to glean truth from what happened there and be reminded of all that Jesus did to pay the penalty of our sin. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, the first thing I want you to notice today is Christ's betra- uh, prediction of his betrayal, beginning in verse 17. And as we look back there, it tells us in the, ne- in the evening he came with the twelve. Now you remember that Jesus has already sent out two disciples to find the place where the Passover supper will be held, and they will prepare the lamb that will be part of that Passover meal. And uh, uh, they're ready to do that. That would have been on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, the day uh, of uh, the day before the Passover. And that month is uh, in the range of our April, uh, March and April. That's why uh, Resurrection Day is sometimes in March and sometimes in April and never the same day every year because it goes by the Jewish calendar. Now, uh, Jesus then arrives with his disciples in the evening. This would have been after sundown, sometime after six in the afternoon. And we need to understand that the Jewish reckoning of time is important. The day of Passover was the 15th of Nisan. So how did Jesus and his disciples partake of it in the evening? Well, we have to be thinking that their time went from evening to evening, whereas ours goes from midnight to midnight. So the uh, afternoon of the 14th would have been on uh, Thursday, but late in the evening after sundown would be the beginning of the next day. So it would have been the 15th of Nisan, and that's when they gathered together for the supper sometime after uh, that 6 p.m. time frame. And that means that the next day then would still be the 15th of Nisan until 6 p.m. And we also need to remember that on the day of Passover, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Passover lambs would be offered in the temple as part of the first day of the feast. And that is the time when Jesus actually gave up his life and was sacrificed for us, the same time those lambs were being sacrificed. Now, beginning in verse 18, Jesus predicts his betrayal by one of the 12, which I imagine would have been a very shocking statement to his disciples. He says in verse 18, now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, truly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Now, they were totally unaware of what was going to happen. As, as readers, we're well aware of, of this announcement. We know uh, of the plotting of Christ's enemies goes way back to chapter 3 in Mark's gospel. We know a deal has been struck between Judas and the Jewish priest, but the disciples are clueless to all these things. They, they don't really get it. And imagine how they must have felt when Jesus said this. They've been handpicked by the Lord. They've been with him almost uh, all of the time 
over the last three years. They've heard his preaching. They've witnessed his miracles and his healings. They've even seen him cast out demons. On certain occasions, they've been able to do the same things that Jesus did. They've been given uh, his power and uh, his presence. How could they imagine such a horrible thing happening that one of them would betray the Lord Jesus? And to betray someone at a meal, which in the Near East is a sign of friendship and closeness with someone, this would have been despicable to a Jew. And to do so at a meal with such spiritual significance as the Passover would have been especially heinous in their eyes. Now, no wonder the disciples' response is one of incredulity and kind of shadowed by doubt as they begin to ask him, is it I? Am I the one who's going to do this? They began to be sorrowful. They were greatly dismayed. How could such a thing be true? How could one of us ever do such a thing? But then they asked that question. Now, uh, there's a hint there of some self-doubt. It isn't me, is it? And although the question would expect a negative response, um, perhaps they're looking to Jesus to give them an assurance that it's not one of uh, them. And this kind of indicates some doubt or some insecurity or the possibility that I might be the one. Now, as we mentioned, Mark does not reveal the identity of the disciple, but of course we know who it is from the other Gospels. And the only thing Jesus gives as a clue is that one of, the one of the twelve who dips with him in the dish is the one who is the betrayer. Now, the only problem is that dish contained a sauce that went with the meal and all 12 of them would be dipping into the dish. So that really didn't help much with the identity of the person he's talking about. And only John in his gospel reveals that Jesus gave a sop to Judas, then Satan entered Judas, and Jesus sent him out into the dark to do his heinous deed. So Jesus knows what's going on the whole time. But then he makes a statement here, that probably would have been bone-chilling to his disciples. I think it still kind of is today. He says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it's written of him. Now we've seen already from Psalm 41 what Jesus was talking about there. It was prophesied in uh, the Old Testament that someone is going to come, the servant of the Lord, and they're going to, to suffer. But in Psalm 41, David speaks about an experience he's going through, and this is actually something that's fulfilled in Christ as well. And he says there, All who hate me whisper against me. Isn't that what the Jews were doing to Jesus? Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. That's their hope that he would die. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So a prophecy 
of the betrayal way back in the days of David is now taking place in the life of Christ. But then he goes on to say, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, uh, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And indeed, how true that would be when you think about it. It would be better never to have experienced life at all than to end up in hell for all of eternity paying the price of your sin. And that's very pertinent to our day. Are we sure we know the Lord because the price we'll pay if we don't is the price of our own sin and it will be forever. Now, again, Jesus knew all this. It had been ordained from eternity, but Judas is still responsible for his choices, for his actions, for his apostasy, even as people are today. Heaven forbid that anybody in our congregation reject the Lord Jesus the way that Judas did. Now, that leads up to uh, Christ's presentation of his sacrifice in the next few verses here, as Mark in his gospel gives the shortest and the most basic description of this supper. And his focus is on the symbolism of the elements that are partaken of, the bread and the wine. And there are two thoughts that we want to focus on as we look at this. First of all, the bread represents Christ's body. As we come before the table today, uh, the bread that we partake of, the unleavened bread, is a symbol of Christ's body in some way. <clears throat> and back then, uh, during the Passover feast, the people would have eaten unleavened bread. That means it wouldn't have uh, raised up into a loaf like we're familiar with today. It would have been kind of a flat loaf. Uh, so the Lord takes that bread in verse um, 22, and he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples. And when he blesses that, this is not a, a, a prayer of consecrating the bread, it's really a, a prayer of thanksgiving for God's provision that was common at the meal. And it would be similar to our asking grace or our uh, thanking God when we sit down and we partake of our meals, uh, thanking him for his provision. Uh, similar to Christ's pattern prayer, give us this day our daily bread. So he shares this with his disciples, and he alludes to the bread as his body. Now, obviously, he's speaking figuratively. He didn't mean that somehow the bread was becoming his body, and we, like a cannibal, are going to eat from it. That does not make any sense at all. So he's speaking here figuratively. In John's gospel, uh, Jesus uh, had a discourse, a sermon about him being the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And he said that in the context of comparing himself spiritually to the manna God provided for Israel in the wilderness. That manna came miraculously down from heaven and it fed the people and kept them alive for all that period of time. So as God sustained the ancient Jews uh, through a material provision of bread, Jesus sustains us 
with himself as our spiritual bread, so to speak. So in this meal, he's showing the disciples that they're sharing something significant about him and with him. They won't get it right then, but they will in the future. And he's teaching them that he's going to ever be present with his people. He's always going to abide in them, and he's going to give them constant spiritual life and sustenance if they put their faith and trust in him for salvation. Then the Lord Jesus uh, goes on to the presentation of the cup, which was again part of the Passover meal. And uh, this is the cup representing his sacrificial death for us. And at that Passover meal, there would be four cups that were shared by the participants. The second cup was presented before the meal, and at that cup, the father of the family would repeat the story of Israel's deliverance uh, uh, from Egypt through the Passover meal. Now, some believe Jesus took up this part of his presentation at that cup. However, it might be more likely that he did this at the third cup uh, and shared this with the disciples, which is the cup of blessing, and that is taken up after the main course. That appears to be the situation here. As Jesus speaks of it, uh, he speaks of it again as representing something. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Now, in the mind of an Israelite, this would relate to the Mosaic covenant at Sinai, back in Exodus 24. And that covenant was ratified uh, through the sacrificial blood of an offering, an animal offered up, and uh, that sealed the covenant between the Lord and his people. And since that time, there were hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of sacrifices that were brought uh, to God for the people as an atonement for their sin, to cover their sin until the servant of the Lord came and gave his life as a ransom for many. And we might wonder about all this blood, this blood that was shed, this blood that we sing about today. Why do we have to have this idea of the blood? Well, the Bible tells us the blood represents the life. And the shedding of blood represents uh, death. And the Lord said, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. A life has to go for a life. And in the Old Testament, the life that went for a life was not another human being. It was an animal. And God covered that person's sin through the blood of that sacrifice, saving their life, so to speak. But when Jesus came, he had to offer up his blood in our place, his life in our place, so that we could have forgiveness of sin. One commentator wrote, as the original covenant back there at Sinai was sealed with a blood sacrifice, with the blood sprinkled over the people who were to be members of that community, so a new covenant is also to be inaugurated by a sacrifice and the blood shared among the people of the new covenant, which, of course, was ratified by Jesus' death on the cross. So the new covenant is the, the covenant that is secure for all of eternity, and it only had to be 
uh, ratified by that one death of the Lord Jesus. This would also remind the people and these disciples of that great passage in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant of the Lord. And the 12th verse reads like this. God speaking, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his life or his soul unto death. And the word shedding here is the same verb as poured out. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that is a vicarious sacrifice. He laid down his life not for himself, but for others. He lived a perfect life and therefore could offer up this perfect sacrifice. Now the disciples um, unlikely would have grasped the full significance of what Jesus was presenting to them, but it won't be long before they do. And it probably would have been a bit shocking to them to hear this kind of a metaphor of eating his body and drinking his blood, even though he made it clear this is symbolic. Uh, It's also very likely that Judas was present to share this meal, and he was sent out uh, right after it as Jesus gave him that sop. And so again, the disciples aren't sure of who it was that was going to uh, betray the Lord Jesus. So that again would highlight his treachery even more. But then Jesus does not yet conclude what he's doing. If you look in verse 25, assuredly, truly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he's pointing out here, this is the last time he's going to be uh, uh, involved in this uh, meal and drink wine, and he's not going to drink it again until a future time. So the time of his death, of his parting, is very near, and he's making this kind of a promise that although he's going to die, he's not going to stay dead. He's going to come back and he's going to drink this wine anew in the kingdom of God in the future. And that kingdom, of course, will be visible. Uh, People will understand what it is and they will all enjoy the fellowship of the kingdom in the future. So the supper ends on this note of hope Mingle with the sorrow, mingle with the consternation. There's still this hope that Jesus is giving to them that all this appears to be the end, it's not really the end. And then we see there in verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this kind of is before uh, the, the suffering in Gethsemane. And it's interesting here that During the Passover meal, uh, certain psalms would be sung. I believe it's Psalm 113 through 118. And the last part of the songs that would be sung would be in in, uh, Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. And if you went back there and you looked at some of these, it's very clear that some of those portions were being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly the 27th verse, of Psalm 118, which reads, 
God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And here Jesus is about to become the sacrifice that will be offered up to God once and for all, accomplishing his salvation. So no more sacrifices need to be made. Now, that brings us then to the predictions of desertion and denial, beginning in verse 27. We've seen the Lord predict that there's a betrayer at the table. He's shown them the meaning of the Passover as it's really being fulfilled in his person and his work. And now, as they head out to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane, he makes another prediction that truly, again, must have been amazing to the disciples, and they don't want to accept that this is true. And I wonder what they're thinking about as they're heading up the the hill uh, to the Mount of Olives and the height of the Mount of Olives. They hear the prediction about Christ's betrayal, but have they really understood who it is yet? I don't think they really realize at this point it was Judas. They thought he was out doing something else related to the Passover. And what did the Lord mean by this allusion to his body and blood and the elements of the supper? And how would he be with them in a kingdom in the future when they thought the kingdom was supposed to be now? So all these things are going on in their minds. And then Jesus makes this next stocking, or excuse me, shocking statement that includes all of them. And he says there in verse 27, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. So it's already uh, probably very late It could be around midnight. And they're going up to spend the night there, not in a home, but on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going to pray and agonize very shortly, and then very early in the morning, he's going to be betrayed and start his trials. So we're only talking about a few hours left before all that transpires on the morning and afternoon of uh, what we would say is the next day, but was still Nisan 15. And he says, all of you are going to stumble stumble this night. You're going to be offended by me. Uh, You're going to uh, uh, take offense. You're going to fall away. Now, this is a revelation of the weakness and the frailty of their faith at this point. They have confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. They thought he was going to be the king of Israel then and there. And so they were yet not ready to take a stand with Christ to the death. Now this again is related to the way the Son of Man must go. Jesus quoted from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, and that portrays God striking his shepherd, resulting in the scattering of the sheep, And that's about to be fulfilled now as Jesus is betrayed into the hands of men. But it was necessary for that to happen, and it was really the Lord's way of protecting and preserving those disciples. 
What would have happened if they had been taken with the Lord Jesus and they had been crucified as well? Uh, Who would have preached the gospel in the future? They would learn a valuable lesson about their inability to stand true in their own power or resolve. So all this is working out to the Lord's will, to his purposes, and really is going to protect them uh, to go on and preach the gospel at a later time. But note here again, uh, we have a good outcome because Jesus says in verse 28, reminding them again, after I have been raised, after I've been resurrected, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus is again stating here that although they're going to fail, they're going to be scattered, they're going to be uh, uh, offended at what happens to the Lord Jesus, he's going to gather them again. He's going to be raised up. He's not going to die forever, and he's going to meet them again in, in uh, uh, Galilee, the region where his ministry was focused, the the place where... Uh, He was best received. Uh, He was not uh, mocked. Uh, Jerusalem is the place where it's just the opposite of that. But now he's going to uh, again be with them in Galilee where they saw much success. So that was a note of hope uh, that they could kind of turn to. But then we come to the prediction of denial in verse 29. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Now, doesn't that sound like Peter? Isn't that typical of him? Blurting out things that he doesn't think through, thinking he's got the situation under control, that he knows what's happening, and he always has to say something about what's going on, and believing that his loyalty is, is strong and unquestionable, and this can't be true of him. Well, Jesus has a little bit of harsh news for Peter. He's not as strong as he thinks he is. Assuredly, that again is that true statement of fact, assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. So before the dawning of the morning, and you hear that rooster crowing, you're going to deny me three times before he crows two times. Well, Peter doesn't want to hear that. Peter doesn't want to accept that as true. But Jesus, again, knows more about Peter than Peter knows about himself. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a lesson all of them would learn shortly and one we need to learn as well. So Peter strongly responds to this. He says in verse 31, he spoke more vehemently. I mean, he was really irate. He was upset. And he states, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, I don't know if he and the disciples really thought Jesus was going to die. Uh, I don't know if that clicked with them yet, because they all said likewise. 
Yeah, we're, we're, we're with you. If you've got to die, we're going to die with you. We're going to go down with you. I'm not sure if they really understood that's what was exactly going to happen. And when the fan hit the fire, they all scattered. They weren't ready to make that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, one day they would. Once Jesus was raised from the dead, once they were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, they would begin to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel to the very people who put Jesus to death. And one day, most of them would face a martyr's death. One day, most of them would die for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, Mark again presents the disciples in a negative way. They think they can stand, but uh, in their vehement self-reliance, he knows they will fall. And Jesus knows they're not ready to stand with him in the face of these threatening situations. He knows that he must use their false sense of loyalty against them so he can really protect them. And he also knows that in the future, these things are going to happen. Uh, these things are going to take place. His predictions have to hold true. So as we come before the Lord's table, what are some things that we need to be reminded of? Well, first of all, <clears throat> uh, the Lord's table reminds us that Jesus came into the world as the bread of life, as he stated previously. Few people realize it, but he is the source of everyone's physical life and sustenance today. You don't have to believe that or know it for it to be true, and God should be thanked for that. But more importantly, Jesus is our bread of spiritual life. He gives us life that lasts forever when we put our faith and trust in him as our Savior, and he feeds us from his word and shares his life-giving spirit with us. So he is our physical sustenance, our spiritual sustenance as well. Then we're reminded that it is through his shed blood on our behalf that the penalty of our sin is dealt with. His life went for hours, uh, his blood for hours, so to speak. He paid the price of eternal death for us. And his blood of sacrifice provides the only means of forgiveness that we can have with God. And when we trust him, we become one of the many who experience that new covenant of life in Christ. We become a citizen of the kingdom of God. So have you come to the place today where you put your faith and your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus for you? And then we have to re be reminded about uh, those predictions. We may not betray Jesus like Judas did, but we certainly do stumble. We can deny him in many ways. When we fall to a temptation, that is sin, that's stumbling. It's not a falling away in permanence as Judas did, but it's a time where we need to confess our sin and come back to the Lord. When we think we can live for Christ and stand by him through our own grit and determination, uh, when we uh, have a proneness to do our own thing, to live our own way, 
or to think that our loyalty resides in us rather than the Lord, well, we're like Peter. We're like the disciples. We fail to see that we need Jesus to uphold us and live through us. So as the disciples learned that lesson that they can't rely upon themselves to truly be loyal to Christ, we need to learn that as well. We have to trust in him and what he's given and provided for us to walk closely with him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for what Jesus has done to save us. We're thankful, Lord, that through his shed blood we have forgiveness of sin, and we're thankful, Lord, that because he is the bread of life, he sustains us every day, and one day we'll arrive at that point where we're with him in his kingdom. Encourage our hearts as we think about these things today, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, man, if you'll come this morning. I think today it's pretty clear what this table is all about. And uh, we just need to be thankful for what the Lord Jesus has done to save us, how he shed his blood uh, through uh, no payment of sin for himself, but for ours. And also be thinking that sometimes in our, our pride and our self-reliance, we think that we can go through the Christian life without really depending upon the Lord. That we don't need to be in his word, we don't need to uh, pray, we don't need to seek uh, his wisdom and his grace. Uh, we can just kind of muddle through on our own. The disciples found out that that doesn't work. And even though they vehemently said they would not deny Christ, Within a few hours, they did. So we need to be careful we don't have that kind of an attitude today. Always having an attitude of trusting Christ, not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification, our daily walk and service for Him. So let's be thinking about that as we come before His table today. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful that Jesus gave His life for us. That Jesus, uh, through His sacrifice, shares his life with us each day. He's like uh, bread that we take in uh, for physical sustenance, only, Lord, he gives it to us for our spiritual walk with you. We just uh, pray, Lord, today that you'll help us to be thoughtful of these things and help us, Lord, to depend upon you for that daily sustenance, whatever it might be, to help us in our spiritual walk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
Well, as we have just uh, read and expounded, the Lord Jesus had gathered with the disciples on that uh, evening of the Passover meal. And he took that bread, explained to them that it meant that he was sharing his sacrifice with them, his future life with them. And he said to them, take eat. Heavenly Father, we're thankful today also for the cup that represents your shed blood on our behalf. We're thankful, Lord, that even though you've gone back to heaven, you've promised that you will drink it anew with us in your future kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be looking forward to that day, working for it, and serving you until that day arrives. And help us always to be thankful that without your sacrifice, we would be nothing. So bless us as we partake again today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. presented in uh, his shed blood on our behalf. He said, take and drink this in remembrance of me. As we close this morning, let's turn to hymn number uh, 265. Just a reminder to us that Jesus paid the price for all of our sin. And if you're not sure of your standing with him, you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior yet, would like to speak to me or your mom or your dad, uh, maybe you would just come and sit in the front pew and we'll help you out or do that someplace private. Let's stand together as we close. 265, Jesus paid it all.
Jesus shed blood on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to be thankful, and Lord, help us to share the good news as we work for you through this week. We ask in Jesus' name.